Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, I, one of the things that we always come back to on the show, of course, is housing. It's an inescapable issue. Uh, and one thing that we haven't talked about so much in the housing domain is just the cost of building houses. These Nobody days, knows building apartments. how much it costs. Well, I have no idea. Oh. I mean, I assume it's expensive because the houses are expensive. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're totally right. It is such a black box. Um, but, you know, I did see a stat the other day just showing the percentage change in construction costs for a house in different cities and how much it's increased in the past 10 years or so mm-hmm. is it's really it's quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I don't These really understand why they're without cold plunges. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The baseline, the baseline cost. Just a basic house. No sauna, <laughs> no cold plunge, none okay. of that. Just checking. Uh, so I thought, you know, it's time that we start diving into the details of why costs are going up. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of ground to cover on this. But to kick us off in sort of that domain, I think we really do have a great guest on today. Uh, he's been covering construction for many years. Russell Hickson is the editor of Site News, which is a great resource for uh, all sorts of construction, trade news, and newsletter. So, Russell, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, what precipitated this uh, conversation is a a tweet that I saw that showed construction costs for different cities and how they've changed in the past, I can't remember if it was five or ten years or something, and there were a number of Canadian cities in the top, like, 20 of global growth and construction costs and toronto was i think two or three it was number two yeah yeah it had gone up by maybe you know the number i think it was 40 45 percent something like that yes and i mean with the housing shortage that we face it seems like that is a big problem so maybe we can just start by trying to understand the lay of the land a little bit like how much does it cost to build something now in a city like Toronto, and why is it so expensive? So yeah, we, we can start there. Um, the latest like square footage data that I saw, um, you know, is one hundred eighty five to three hundred fifteen dollars per square foot in Vancouver, Toronto. I think it's two hundred five to two eighty. Um, I think I, I like to look at the BCPI. I think it's the Building Construction Price Index, and so that kind of covers all of the, the, the whole, the more, so it's a more holistic way to look at construction costs. And so what they basically do, and I, I, I'm not an economist, so I had to like sit down and I understand what an index is and I'd educate myself a little bit. I had no idea what it was. So basically they set a baseline. So they pick a year and they go, we're going to start here. That's where we're going to, we're going to start counting and tracking these costs. And every time they go up, we're going to compare it to the base and, and show you how much it's increased. The last time that they set the base was 2017, which is kind of nice, just before the pandemic, right? Mm. And since then, um, it's gone up, I believe, uh, for like the 11 biggest cities in Canada, like 73%. So Calgary, like 79%. Wow. Edmonton, 65 So like even, even like the cities that you might think are, are more affordable and doing better, they've still had, ma- have had massive price increases. So like... Since they've been tracking, you know, the latest baseline from the BCPI, this has gone up like 
just an obscene amount. Um, and, and builders are definitely feeling it. When I interviewed builders, you know, during the height of the pandemic, they said this is unprecedented. We've never seen price increases like this. And we'll get into like more specifically what they're talking about. But, mm. you know, at the time, materials was a big one just because, you know, there's so many different examples. But even something as simple as, uh, uh, you know, people getting sick at a port or, or China closing down their port because too many people are sick. Uh, that has such massive ripple effects throughout the entire economy. Or even at like, a, a, you know, they had issues in B.C. at the, the, the places that produce lumber, um, which they need. They, they operate extremely efficiently, so they need all the people there to produce lumber. And, and if a few people got sick, that would have all these ripple effects. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've seen in the past few years, I, I think if we want to make a broader statement, I think COVID-19, I know it's, it's kind of exhausting to keep talking about it, even, you know, in, in 2024, but it kind of accelerated a lot of trends that were slowly happening in construction mm-hmm. and just kind of like through like gasoline on them and, and made those, those cost increases just spike really, really rapidly. And yeah, I, I mean, I can go down the list of kind of the, the, the big offenders right now for, for cost yeah. increases. Cause there's ones that kind of, you know, pop up here and there um, like, you know, a war or there'll be like a weather event, like in BC, we have the atmospheric river, those things kind of those, like, I don't know, we call them acts of God, those kind of come and go. Um, but there's definitely some more persistent ones that that are that are big. Yeah. So let's get into those. What are the, when you're talking to builders? What are, what are the persistent areas where they're seeing cost increases? I think the the without question the number one thing that keeps builders up at night and is causing them to lose. I mean, I can't say who. I was talking to a large builder this week, and and they said. That, that not having access to labor has cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. Like it is just burning a hole in, in the pocket of, of builders. And it's something that we've known about for a, a while. It's no secret. It's just for going off a demographic cliff here and it's happening in other industries. You know, you have a lot of people who have been in the trades, they're highly skilled workers, they're electricians, they're project managers, they're carpenters. And they're getting to retirement age and they're retiring. And there's just not as many people going into the industry for a variety of different reasons. And that makes builders not able to take on as much work. It's, it, it just causes a lot of massive challenges. I think that's the, probably the number one issue. And then also you have material costs, which is a, another fascinating one because I, you always hear about material costs going up and you're always, well, why? That, that's the question that I always have. It's like, yeah. well, why, why is lumber going up? Why does steel go up? You know, why does concrete, the price of concrete go up? And it can get very, I think that's such a mass. And I've gone down this rabbit hole. It, it's one of my favorite rabbit holes. Just really digging into why the cost, because you think, are they just raising the price for no reason? And the answers are often really surprising, I think. So, I mean, w- when you've gone down those rabbit holes and, and looking at some of the material inputs into construction mm-hmm. where we've seen cost increases, the ones that have continued since the pandemic, you know, like we read all, read about the lumber mills that were shut down for reasons that seemed sort of transitory, but, you know, where you've seen those effects persist, what is the cause and, and where is that happening? 
So let's lumber is a great one. Let's let's talk about lumber. So I did a big interview with a he's a professor. His name's Gregory Paradise, and he's actually a lumber expert. And I asked that same question. I'm like, why why is the price of lumber so volatile sometimes? And it it, it starts by understanding that like a lot of lumber, it's a commodity, meaning there's not a lot of differentiation between if I buy lumber from person A or person B. It lumber's lumber, and so that creates um, it, it creates like a, who, who can produce it the cheapest because it's always the same product. And he explained that in like the 1980s, the lumber market became a global market. So everybody's competing against everybody. And so how do you win that battle? Like you do several things. You, you specialize. So we're only going to make this kind of lumber and we're going to do it really, really fast and really, really efficiently. We're going to run our mills um, at full capacity. So we, and our price margins are small. And so what that means is you eventually create a supply chain for lumber that is only a few people. Um, they can only operate at super full capacity. So there's not a lot of slack. And if one of them, you know, goes bankrupt or even a few people get sick, it has this massive ripple effect and there's not a lot of redundancy and there's not a lot of slack. Like during the pandemic, we saw a lot of people wanting to take on home projects. There was, there was an increased demand for lumber. And we just don't have the capacity to accommodate that because our mills already operate um, at, at a level they need to make those small profit margins for commodities. So that's just one example. There's just not a lot of redundancy or slack for certain kinds of products like lumber in construction. So what happens when you see, I guess, like lumber specific shortages, like when you look at wood specifically, like how does the industry react to that? Because you hear... Um, it seems like there has to be so much like quick um, pivoting, right? To like you hear about how like white oak, for instance, which is like I think used in like a lot of hardwood floors and like even furniture. I don't know how much it's used in the construction process too, but I wonder like how that works. I guess more specifically, like in terms of specific materials running out and like what do those pivots look like? I guess if we could dial into the lumber and wood piece a little mm -hmm. bit more because that's so important in construction. That's a great question. So I. I've, I've talked to a lot of builders about this and they do, they do several things. So one of the things they do is they start stockpiling. So they don't know when they see kind of crazy fluctuation in lumber price. Um, what they'll do is they'll buy up a, a, builders who have the ability to store it. Um, some, a lot of them don't, um, some of them do. So what they'll do is they'll try and uh, mitigate the, the volatility by buying a bunch right now. They know they're going to need it. They know they're going to need lumber. So they just buy as much as they can and try and, you know, hope that mitigates their risk. Another thing is they, and this is what I, I think should happen in the industry is they go to all their partners in a construction project. You know, they go to the owner, they go to the, some of the other partners and they share that risk. So when you sign a contract and say, I'm going to build this for this price, you don't always know if lumber is going to spike. And, you know, the person who you're building it for may come to you and say, you have to eat that cost. You sign this contract. Now give me the price that you set. And I mean, that may work for that one particular party, but for the industry as a whole, I think that creates something that's very toxic. And I think more and more what we're seeing, and this is like a larger trend and, and lumber and, you know, materials pricing is just one part of that is builders on a project need to work together to share that risk. Because there's always going to be volatility. Um, you know, stuff is going to happen. 
And if you're just trying to gouge each other, if you're trying to just beat each other, you know, everybody's going to lose. Builders are going to go bankrupt. And then you're not going to have a partner to work with in the future. So I think we saw some owners and some people were willing to work with builders and some weren't. And I think that was frustrating. For, for How good has the industry been hmm. at like transitioning to materials that are like cheaper? Because we don't make homes out of bricks anymore. And you'd think that if, okay, costs for lumber are going really, really high, then maybe there's, we can immediately turn to the synthetics or synthetic woods, or we can turn to something else. I don't know if it's metal or concrete or, or what people would do, but how does the industry, like, is that factored in, in terms of why can't we regulate costs that way? It, it's difficult for, for one thing, like the, the, the timeline of a project is several years. So like pivoting, it's like turning a cruise ship. It takes a long time. Um, you know, oftentimes builders don't get to decide what they're building with. It's, it's an owner who, you know, a developer comes and says, I want to build this and I want it to look like that. So they don't always get to decide. They try and, uh, there's sometimes like a negotiation, like a builder will try and explain, look, if we build it this way, it'll be better. But, you know, sometimes it's, it's not really up to them. Like, I think like modular construction, um, you know, there, there's different techniques that the reason why we don't do more of them isn't necessarily because they don't work. It's because I, I think some people, there's some risk involved. So once you start using materials that a builder is not necessarily comfortable with or hasn't built with a whole lot, transitioning to, you know, some of these other materials, I think involves some risk. And a lot of people aren't super willing to try that. Construction is an extremely risk averse industry. They're, they've been building the same way for decades um, they're very slow to change. They're, they're starting to change, but uh, no, you're right. Like I, I, there's definitely some materials and some different things that I wish we would take advantage of more. But again, a lot of people are just very. We go back to the uh, the inputs into the cost of construction sure. now. Do you have a sense of how that breaks down between labor, materials, other costs? Like you know, on a percentage ish basis uh yeah i mean again it, it definitely depends on the project but like you know labor can be 20 to 40 percent materials can be you know roughly the same um the great thing about like and we can talk about government fees now is we know exactly how much government fees are because um you know they they just they it's it's public information i don't always know exactly what a builder is spending on materials or, or labor. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes they want to keep those cards close to their chest, but we know right now, like, you know, the average development cost levied by municipalities for, let's see, no low rise, new housing development is about $62,000 per unit. Um, Toronto's at a much higher end. So like $189,000 per unit. And let's see here. Wow. Edmonton. Would that be in like an apartment building? Yeah. So low rise is like just a few stories. Gotcha. Yeah, and then the high rise will be much higher than that. So it, it, it can be tens of thousands of dollars per unit. And some cities are much cheaper. Like, let's see here. Vancouver is actually 125000 So it's like, you know, it can go anywhere from like 189000 close to 200000 down to just like $69,000 per unit. It just depends on the municipality, right? So this this is, I, I empathize with municipalities because you may wonder like, oh, why is it this fees are so much lower in, in Edmonton than Toronto, right? 189,000 versus like 49,000. Well, I mean, what are those fees? 
go towards. They go towards um, infrastructure. So they're telling builders, if you want to build here, that's great. But with all these new people, we're going to need to upgrade the roads. We're going to need better, you know, wastewater. We're going to need better streetlights, all, all that kind of stuff. So I, I understand that they're also transit. You know, Toronto has a massive, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar transit, you know, Ontario line, um, all these different uh, massive transit projects that they're trying to pay for. So, like, I empathize with that, but it definitely makes, you know, building these things uh, a lot more challenging. And then the other part of that, too, if we want to drill down and, and kind of hammer on these municipalities, a huge amount of cost increase is simply waiting for your project to get approved, right? Right. So the burden of, I mean, how does that work mechanically? Why does a longer approval process add to more costs? It, it's like certainty. So you, you, to get up, get, to gather your materials, like the price of materials and labor may go up in the time that you're waiting. So you may sign mm-hmm. a contract or you may have an agreement and then the costs will go up. Um, or you're just, you, you, construction companies don't want like a lot of capital tied up in, in a project. They want to keep moving through projects. You want the money to be flowing. You don't want money to just be sitting there. Um, and so you're, every day that you don't have a shovel in the ground is a day that you're not making money. You're not, you're, you're, your workers are sitting around doing nothing. You know, ideally you want people working every single day, right? And so sitting and waiting for a project is, is, is no good for developers too. developers want to develop and then sell and then move on to the next project. And in a place like Toronto, um, you could be sitting waiting as long as three years if your project is going to go ahead or not, which you probably have already spent uh, a lot of money on designers, consultants, different people to submit an application and present your case. So you're, you're already, you know, investing a lot of money in something that may just be deemed uh, not to go through. Have any of the costs for inputs that rose during the pandemic, have they receded at all? Like, are there anything, is there anything that's, you know, the same price as it was in 2018, 2019, or has it basically like gone up across the board? I would say it's probably gone up across the board, although we've seen wages mellow out a little bit. Um, they're still high and they still are, are, are rising because of that shortage of labor. But I'd, I'd say almost everything has, has, has gone up. I mean, yeah, I, I haven't seen a significant, um, you know, a retreat in, in, in many things, to be honest. Does the cost of building vary significantly from, say, like Toronto versus Edmonton or Vancouver versus Calgary outside of the fees that municipal governments collect? Like, is it cheaper to hire people to do these jobs in Edmonton than it is in somewhere like Toronto? Yeah. I mean, I think some markets are definitely more competitive. Um, and wages, I think wages, uh, you're just going to have to pay more, uh, for construction worker in a market like Vancouver or Toronto, just because of like obvious things like cost of living. Um, and it's just a more competitive market. There's more builders that are competing for your, your labor They're They want your labor. And we've actually seen, you know, one of the strategies a lot of companies are using. I even just saw today Bird Construction acquired some major electrical contractor. And the big part of that was acquiring, you know, 450 electricians. It's Mm -hmm. a lot of companies are gobbling up kind of smaller contractors solely because they want that labor that that's like gold to them. That's the best thing that they could get out of a deal like that. 
If we stay on the labor point, um, I'm wondering if you could speak to just how bad the labor shortage is and maybe yeah. like what the specific ripple effects are, like how um, does it impact, I guess, like the industry on the whole from just like developers to builders? Like, how do you see that there's a labor shortage and what are and how does it build up in a bad way? Yeah, so I believe so Build Force Canada is a really, really great uh, tool for this. So they have they, they put out you may have seen some of their forecasts. I think their latest forecast is we're going to be about uh, when, when all the if, if not if everything stays the same, if the same amount of people retire and the same amount of people kind of enter the industry, um, once that math is done, we're short more than 60,000 construction workers. And um, that's and that's just assuming, you know, things don't get worse. And so the the, the impact that that has on, I think, most construction companies is that they just have to say no to work. Um, and the obvious result of that, you know, for the more the average person who's not in the construction sector is less homes are built. Like, it, it's just it's basic. You know, if there's not enough people to build the homes and, you know, companies have to say no to the work, they're already at capacity you know, fewer homes are going to get built. And then, you know, we aren't addressing our affordable housing crisis. Are we starting to see that? We've been seeing this for years. Like, this is not a new thing. This has been going on. I've been covering construction almost a decade. And one of the first things that I was talking to people about is this shortage of labor. It's, again, it's a demographic cliff. People who study, you know, population have been yelling about this for, for a long time. And we're in the middle of it. And I, I would say that if you talk to any major construction association, any major company, their number one problem right now is they can't find enough skilled workers. They just can't. So, you know, when you started covering construction uh, 10 years ago, housing was, it wasn't cheap, I guess, but it was like significantly cheaper than it is today. Were building costs sort of, proportionately also uh, less than they are today? How has that changed over that time? I mean, it, it even just in my personal life, I, I remember just my rent living in Burnaby, which is now one of the most expensive places to build in the entire country, was extremely cheap. Like, and it's gone up so much. Um, it definitely, I, I mean, housing affordability has always been an issue, but back then it was not nearly as big an issue. And all those costs have, have gone up. And I think, but we didn't, we didn't see the massive spike that we're seeing until the COVID-19 pandemic. That really accelerated everything, right? I mean, even just on the labor side, um, you had, not only do you have a shortage of labor, but then all of a sudden you're on a construction site where you're trying to be efficient, you're trying to make money. And then all of a sudden you have all these regulations, which I mean, we're trying to keep people safe. I'm not saying these are bad things. But now you have an added layer of, you know, complexity with safety where we have to have hand washing stations. We have to, you know, make sure people are, are, are working safe. And that definitely um, was, was very challenging um, and, and totally unprecedented for the industry. Do you see any potential solutions for this on the horizon in the near term? Is it just like we just need more people to do these jobs or is there any sort of technological fixes that are in the pipe that could bring costs down? That's a very good question. I mean, I did an interview with a UBC professor recently 
Um, and they're already starting to uh, demonstrate AI controlled robotics for, you know, a lot of basic tasks for loading and unloading things. Um, I've seen robots that can do rebar. Um, there's a company called uh, Nidus 3D, and they are already printing housing developments. Um, I believe in Alberta, they're doing one right now uh, for First Nation. What's that? They're printing them? They're pr- printing them, yeah. Are these so, the concrete ones? Yes, yes. Huh. So they like have, I don't know if you've seen it. And this is something that people no. have kind of, it, it's only, I've heard people talk about it when I first started covering construction, but only now I, I never thought I would see like an actual commercial project. So they're actually, and it's really cool because they're building housing for uh, indigenous people uh, on a first nation where, you know, obviously there's extreme housing need there. And these are often remote areas that it's difficult to get a lot of equipment. So Can you walk us through how the 3 D printing works. Yeah, yeah. So they have, they have like a. So I'm going to try this is a, a podcast. So I'll try and paint a picture here. It's like you have like a framework, like scaffolding, and then you have like a grid that this kind of nozzle can navigate through, and it will you, you input kind of where you want it to put the material, the additive material, the the concrete, and it'll just kind of fly around and it'll drop the material wherever you want. And it can do it in rain or shine. It doesn't get tired. And they're already starting to do this. And it's, I believe the machine they use, so they're called Nidus 3D. And this machine, I believe is called Cobod. It's a Cobod machine from someplace in Europe. Um, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of potential there for, um, you know, like a, a development where you have to do the same thing over and over. Like, let's say you want to build, you know, a dozen homes, a dozen units, and you can just input this and it'll just go. Are there other technologies that you've seen? I've read a little bit about these like robots that can do things like measure out like the perimeter of a site and kind of, you know, do things that humans could, you know, that used to take humans a lot of time. So it seems like these technologies exist like what's what like i guess what are some examples of the technologies maybe that exist things that robots are good at on these sites Mm -hmm. i think the big one that people are using i mean there's a lot of people that talk about um kind of speculative stuff but right now i think uh drone like autonomous drones are becoming a staple at the some of the larger contractors like pcl what they'll do is so you know for a large complex project what you often want to do you know, if you're managing it, you want to know what does the site look like? What progress has been made? Are there any, you know, issues that are arising? And that takes a lot of time to walk around the site, check everything out, you know, analyze things. So what they have is they'll just have autonomous drones that they don't control. Well, they kind of put inputs, they tell them what to do, and then they just will fly off and they'll map the entire project. Sometimes in three, they'll make like a 3D, you know, photorealistic representation of the project. And so you can always be monitoring it and it'll sometimes it'll even identify, you know, uh, safety issues. Um, and it also, it, it, it can navigate like it, it, like, let's say there's a hazard, let's say, you know, um, there's some kind of garbage or beam, it'll, it'll automatically reroute. And, and so a lot of companies are using drones to map and analyze progress. And I know even the province of BC is starting to use drones for, you know, in, in the event of an earthquake or another atmospheric river event, they'll send out drones that will analyze all the infrastructure and will tell you, oh, this bridge is cracked. 
oh, this road has an issue, instead of having to send out people, which could be unsafe, and it's not going to be as efficient. So I think mm-hmm. drones to get more data for construction companies uh, is becoming a, a humongous thing. And that's a whole other conversation about how uh, construction companies are, are starting to you know partner with Microsoft, Copilot, and AI. Um, and I even did a big interview with Graham recently where they're on a multi-year project to structure their data in such a way for AI to um, you know, assist them and, and give them advice. But the problem is it, all that data has to be accessible to some of these, these AI tools. And so they're embarking on this giant task of reorganizing and restructuring their data so that they could have you know, an AI tool tell them Wow, there's some issues here. If you built like this, you know, if you scheduled like this, oh, you're, you know, we we've noticed this pattern in your projects that if you make this tweak, so they're going to eventually have AI help make them more efficient, build better, and make better decisions. So when it comes comes to specifically, I guess, bringing costs down, what is the barrier here? Is it that these solutions are not scalable? Is it that they're really expensive? Because it, like it brings me back to a conversation that we had a couple months ago about grocery stores and how they have the technology, it exists to completely eradicate like shoplifting and to like spot all the shoplifters and to like be able to change the labels in stores and like reduce um, and to be able to have all these efficiencies and, and reduce kind of human labor, but it's just so expensive to, to implement. Mm. And I wonder if there's anything similar at play here or, or what the barriers are in terms of specifically bringing costs down. Yeah, I think I think a lot of these things have have potential. Like, let's take, I, I think modular is a great example of, we know how to build modular buildings. It's been proven that you can save um, potentially a ton of money. You can have buildings that are built to better tolerances. You can have, um, you know, labor. You can, it takes fewer people to build a modular building and building it on site. And then also for like the labor side, you get to build in a climate controlled building. So all those things are great. So you, you have to, it begs the question, why, why don't we do more modular building? And even why are several, you know, in the past few years, several modular builders have even gone out of business. So why is that? And I think I've talked to modular builders and, and, and it's, it's, it's simple is there's not, there's not a lot of government or you know, private interest in, in building these things because they're they're just not used to it and they're very risk averse. So like the government will announce, you know, uh, some modular projects, which they do, but it's not consane, uh, it's not sustained or consistent. So mm. if, if you're going to run a manufacturing facility, a modular facility, you need that sustained, consistent investment. And there just isn't enough appetite, I think, from from government to really go all in and, and push that and create the amount of business um, that would be needed. And so like modular builders, they'll do some of that, but they have to like diversify to stay in business. So they'll have to do workforce accommodations, schools, different things. Um, and there just hasn't been enough interest from government or, or other developers in, in utilizing it. And I think a lot of it is, is fear and just lack of experience with it. Again, it comes back to construction is just very risk averse and they're they're scared of things that haven't been proven. And there's not a ton of people who want to be the first person that that does that. I, 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 I that's not a very satisfying answer, but I think you're right. Like there's a lot of these things that we know that they can work. Um, but a lot of people are just they're scared or they're 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 not willing to bet their company on it. 
Interesting. On the government side of things, are there policy changes that you hear from builders a lot that they would like to see? There's a lot of things. I mean, obviously, I think they would like to see uh, building permit times speed up. And, uh, you know, there's definitely some cool examples of that. Uh, I think Kelowna has partnered with with Microsoft um, to use AI in their building permitting process. So like the AI will come alongside you when you're submitting your application and you're trying to get your permits and things and it'll correct you. It'll go, oh, actually, you didn't do that right. And so that'll save you multiple trips back and forth mm. with someone applying or reapplying and it'll go through and kind of check your application. Um, I also think standardized designs is a really cool thing that I think could save a ton of time and, and money. And I think, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but Sean Frazier, the, the housing minister, recently announced the revival of standardized designs that they're working on. And so essentially, like a big part of cost for a construction project is you have to obviously design a building. So what if instead of, you know, doing a bespoke one-off housing project every time you had a standardized design, like, you know, like the Vancouver special, that's kind of the, one of the classic examples where instead of building a different thing each time, you're going to save time and money by building a similar thing over and over. And then when you go to get a permit, you know, the, the municipality has already seen that kind of building a thousand times. They know it meets code. They know it works. And so it's going to go through the process faster. So that's, that's another thing. Um, and I, and I think on the labor side, I think, I think a lot of builders would like to see the, the barriers and restrictions to getting someone who, to be a tradesperson. Cause I think, you know, BC is a great, great example where we're always begging people to become tradespeople. Well, how hard is that actually? There's actually, there's waiting lists. Um, you can't just go immediately and get trained often. Uh, there's not a ton of training facilities for certain trades. Like, let's say you live, mm -hmm. you know, in, you know, Northern BC and you have to travel to the lower mainland to get trained. That's going to cost you time. That's going to cost you money. You might just give up. I think there should be as little friction as possible for, you know, if a young person puts up their hand and says, Hey, I'd like to be a carpenter, a plumber, an electrician. There should be very, very little friction. They should be able to have, there, there shouldn't be a waiting list for seats for someone who wants to help build homes in Canada. And there is in a lot of places. You know, you've been covering this industry for a long time. Are there any interesting stories that you think have been uh, under discussed, I guess, outside of the construction trade press, like stories that you think should be talked about more in the mainstream press, yeah. but aren't? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'll try not to be biased. I, I do love construction. I've been covering it for a long time. And I think even going into, before I was a construction reporter, I was a crime reporter. I did investigative crime hmm. reporting in the US. I had zero understanding of construction. All I knew is that my brother worked in construction and he came home all dirty and angry and unhappy. That's all I knew. It seemed like, oh, this is a terrible place to work. You're tired. It hurts. But what I've seen in the 10 years that I've been covering construction is a massive effort to uh, be more inclusive with women and indigenous people. I've seen a massive effort to combat bullying. There's been a humongous movement to uh, make it okay to talk about mental health issues. And there's a lot of people that, you know, have come forward and, and, and uh, you know, talked about their struggles. It's becoming a much more progressive industry, uh, even though it's had, I think, a horrible reputation as being very male dominated, chauvinistic, 
dirty, smelly, horrible. I think that has changed a lot. Like even in BC, we saw they're passing laws to require uh, plumbed bathrooms. So even just having a nice bathroom on site, which seems like a simple thing, like it's just be- it's becoming a cleaner, more progressive industry. Uh, and, and also it's becoming a very high tech industry. I was talking to a Silicon Valley uh, expert recently, and he predicts that in the coming years, you're not going to have so much construction companies. You're going to have tech companies that do construction. Hmm. And, and, and if, if, if builders don't start to do that themselves, Silicon Valley is going to parachute in and they're going to do it. And so that's another really interesting story is I think kind of the, 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 the revolution in construction to become more of a tech based thing. The builders who don't become technically savvy, I just don't think they're going to be around or doing well in the coming years. I think that's a really interesting and kind of scary, but also like exciting story because there are a lot of people who are doing really cool things. It's just becoming a more high-tech industry. It's becoming a lot more progressive um, and and welcoming. There's still a lot of work to be done, but I think construction gets a very bad rap and, uh, you know, it doesn't always get covered when when they do nice things. Okay, Russell, if people want to read more of your work, where can they find you online? Go to readsitenews.com. We cover construction all across Canada. We have a great newsletter. Subscribe. Check it out. Yep, that's readsitenews.com. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming. This was great. Yeah, take it easy. Okay, Sarah, well, that was a really interesting conversation with Russell. Any thoughts off the top for you? Off the top of my head, I was really surprised to hear how often Russell mentioned that it is such a risk adverse industry. And on one hand, totally get it. You don't want to be playing it like fast and loose with high rises in Toronto. And that completely makes sense. But the fact that it's such a bottleneck for innovation and he kept saying like, no one wants to be the first one to do the interesting thing. No one wants to be the first one to try a new material. No one wants to be the first one to like have a different structure or frame. And you can't help but think if like that's so ingrained in a culture, like no wonder there are so many issues that stem from that alone. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. And interesting, the point that he made at the end about how he sees uh, a growing opportunity or role for tech companies coming into the construction space who might be more willing to, to do things differently. I think, you know, that's a story that we've seen play out in a lot of other sectors of the economy as well. And it, it does make sense, as you said, that you would have a more conservative attitude towards this in construction where well, it's the like- the tech companies come people, in, that's going away. Yeah. So. I, I mean, come to think of it, like, I don't know if I'd want to live in a a home built by- Meta? Maybe I- I'm, You live you know, in there the is, Google smart there is, home. There is good reason for people being uh, a little risk averse in the space, but it is just interesting to hear that it is so much of a, a cultural thing that is- driving um the the costs at least in part that we have today yeah but like on the labor piece especially and we didn't get to get to this and i really wish that we did but specifically around like wages right like there has to be a point at which the compensation for construction work which is already pretty high i don't think it's like uncommon to be making you know six figures in like a in like a good construction job but like at what point do these white collar workers just start jumping over and help alleviate some of mm, these yeah. shortages. Well, I mean, it sounded, and we, you're right, we should have spent a little bit more time on this, but the wait list issue and just like there is clearly a bottleneck there in the training and licensing for these jobs that 
I don't know, needs to be addressed. Well, that crushed my theory about the white collar workers jumping over because they just can't seemingly get licensed. But like I do, I mean, I have one data point on that too. Like I know somebody that's waited like a year to get into a weld, a welding program. Really? Like in Ottawa. That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? Are they, is that what they're doing? They're like a white collar worker who's trying to jump into no it's just my younger brother so oh, okay but i <laughs> but mean like, ne- nevertheless it's still truly but like those wait lists just like exist and it's crazy yeah. because that is something that like you get out of those programs and you are immediately employable too it's so yeah. different than like our industry or any you know yeah. what i mean or like anything that you kind of train up over years so you kind of leave you have a base set of skills and you're able immediately to get to work and immediately be useful um and so it does seem like they're at least from my perspective from what i've seen there seems to be a bit of a backlog there and so that's a whole other issue too is i guess ramping up the actual programs and slots offered for kids to be able to do it interesting maybe we should talk to someone who runs one of these uh trade colleges you know and just see maybe we should go and just (laughs) improve our career prospects (laughs) podcasting school (laughs) we'd go we go to welding school. Okay, um, well, obviously a lot more to dive into on this topic in future episodes, but should we leave it there for now? I think so. Okay, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find all of our past interviews wherever you get your podcast by searching Free Lunch by the Peak. And please do leave a positive review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It helps us grow the show and reach more people. We will see you next week. <laughs>